Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Amen. What I want to call this is three wise men and a red one. And I wanted to go back and look again at the gifts of frankincense, myrrh, and of course there was gold. But it's, it's the great gift return. And, you know, Christians, they're, they're celebrating Christmas right now. When Messiah comes, he's going to reset their calendar. He's just going to turn a knob. That's all that's going to happen. And they're going to get off the solar thing. And they're going to start calculating the beginning of the months by the moon. And when that happens, the 25th of Kislev, they kept the day. They got the date right. But when you go solar, you turn the knob and you lose the month. So all you have to do is reset the knob, which Yeshua will do very quickly. And all of a sudden, they'll be back on the right date. And much of what they're doing, they can keep. Santa Claus, no. Yuletide log, no. But they, they are onto a few things that did carry over from the Hanukkah celebration, which we know Hanukkah was a Sukkot Sheni or a second Sukkot. So the things you would expect to see at Sukkot were carried over into Hanukkah. And when the knob got turned, they still carried over a lot of things. Shepherds by night, the prophecy of the seven shepherds and the eight princes, the star, all sorts of things that we see associated, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, all that stuff that's in the Gospels, it's right on track. It's just that they stuck it on the wrong date. But that, that's easily fixed when their ears are open. So we want to look at these three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we're going to take our text from Song of Songs 4-6. And what we want to do is we want to unpack what does this prophecy actually mean? When you're reading Song of Songs, you're reading prophecy. And so if it's prophecy, there's something that's critical that you know. Otherwise, you'll make up crazy stuff. You'll, again, have bad information. You'll start thinking wrong, and then you'll start doing wrong. You'll start publishing books and predicting dates and and that sort of thing, when we don't really have to lock ourselves into that. What this passage is going to tell us in a nutshell is that the same judgment that falls on the earth at the end of days is going to create the pathway for you to go home. So do we really want to be afraid of the judgments that we're seeing? Do we want to be afraid of epidemics, of wars, of rumors of wars, of family arguments, national arguments, political arguments, failures of the medical system, failures in sports? Oh my goodness, right? Now sports isn't even what I thought it was. All these systems we leaned on, we're told in prophecy, it'll be like you're leaning on a reed, and if you put too much weight on it, it'll snap and it'll pierce you through the hand. And I can tell exactly how invested someone is in politics, medicine, sports, you name the system, by how loud they scream when they're let down. Who is your commander? Let's look at this text right quick, so we can see how the the same judgment that falls on the world is going to be the road that brings us home. It says, Until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. So let me go ahead and decode that for you, the myrrh and the frankincense. Kind of take it from me, and you can go look it up later. This can refer to the Temple Mount. It's called the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. It's also called his holy hill. 
not just the, the mountain. But this is where they offered the incense offerings and two of the primary offerings. In fact, you'll notice you'll have a pattern in here of mentioning some things in twos. The myrrh and the frankincense are the best known of the fragrances, the incense that was offered on the incense altar. It was taken into the inner altar, and it represented prayers of Israel. So all the prayers of Israel are gathered. They take the coals from the sacrificial altar. The beast has to die first. You take the coals from that altar. You mix it with the frankincense, and that's what makes the prayers go up. So if there's no sacrifice, how effective is the prayer? Yikes. So yes, he wants you to call out in your agony. He wants you to call out in your pain. He knows it's going to hurt when there's things that you have to give up. He knows it's going to hurt when maybe there's things you need to start doing that you haven't been doing. But you throw yourself up there on that altar, and now you've got the appropriate coals. You don't have strange fire. You have the appropriate coals for those prayers to come up, and they will be a sweet-smelling aroma to him. So this is the Temple Mount. It says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no blemish in you. And so who is he talking to? The next verse tells us he's talking to his bride. His bride is without blemish. She's beautiful. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir, from Chemon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. Right right there, you see he, he mentions lions and leopards. Those are two of the beast kingdoms. That's going to be Babylon and Greece. It's going to be the golden head and the bronze belly. I guess you'd call that the belly, lower abdomen. So he doesn't have to mention all the beast kingdoms. He doesn't have to list every spice in the incense, but he's giving you enough, because remember, it's a very poetic book, at least in Hebrew. He's giving you enough that you know what he's talking about. He's testing to see, really, if you've done your Torah portions, for the most part. Uh, Much of this you could derive out of the book of Leviticus. So it's the bride being addressed, and he says, come from Lebanon. Where is Lebanon? Well, we know Lebanon is north of Israel, and it actually, in ancient times, if, if you It's going to go under different names, like the area of Haran is there, the area of, what was it, Uh, Aram was up there. So as you're looking at it geographically, kind of go way back in time to see how much bigger the area was. It's kind of small today, like Israel. Israel will be much bigger in the millennial reign. But he's saying, you have to come from Lebanon. You say, well, how did I get there? I don't feel like I'm in Lebanon. Well, you are. You're in exile. Lebanon was Yaakov's, Jacob's place of exile. He had to go there to find a bride. So come with me. See, everything that is has already been done. And everything that will be has already been been done. There are proto-prophecies in the Torah that we can look to. So he's saying, you're going to come back with my my bride. You're going to come from a place of exile. I want to return you to the temple without blemish. You're going to have to come from a summit or a head of a place called Amana. We're going to look at that. And I'm going to pull you out of the head of Babylon, and I'm going to pull you out of the belly of Greece. In other words, I'm going to get you out of the belly of the beast. We might be living in the world, but we are not of the world. So he's telling me a process of purification will actually take place in the nations of your exile. That's Lebanon. It means to turn white. He's turning you white where we are. And so let's go back and see what seems to be the stumbling block in the world today. And it's going to center around basically one word, Zion. 
We, we read it Zion in our Bibles, but it's Zion. And when somebody says they're a Zionist, doesn't half the world, work, and probably more, go into orbit today? They're fine with a few Jews, you know, hanging out in the land of Israel. A few are okay. But if they see it as a Jewish state, as a Jewish possession, they will go absolutely out of their minds when they hear that word. They reject Zionism. Well, let's find out what it is. Let's see again what the summit of Amanah actually means to us. He's saying, you're going to have to come from a very high place. You're going to have to attain a height in Lebanon. Okay, Lebanon's our exile. It can also be a metaphor for the temple as well, by the way, because the bones of the temple are made from the cedars of Lebanon. Those will interact. You have to know the context. But he says, I want you to attain a a height. I want you to get really high on this thing called Amana. So if we'll go to Genesis 15, 5, we'll see what he's talking about. He's talking to Abraham. He took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to possess it, to possess it, not to travel through, not to take a tour, to possess it. And where it says, Abraham believed, Veheemin, Veheemin is the actual word. The root of it, the Shoresh, is Aman. Now, do you hear where you have to come from? You have to come from the head or the summit of aman, of faith. Emuna, you know that word. Emuna is faith. Okay, same root word there. You in your place of exile need, need to ahead, attain a head, a rosh of faith. He says, I'm taking you out of the head of Babylon because you're going to have a head of faith. You're going to be at the very height of your faith when I bring you home, which is really cool to think we're not just marking time. We are actually putting roots down, and we are becoming fragrant like the cedars of Lebanon. The branches are spreading out. And you know what? The more we identify with this covenant that's in the making right here in Genesis, the more the world will envy you and want to destroy you and displace you. If people aren't noticing you yet, it's because you're not fragrant enough. The fragrance makes them jealous. It makes them envy because they sense that this is an acceptable offering. It goes all the way back to the garden. There's a deception there in the garden. There's a covetousness in the garden. Adonai says, okay, Adam, Eve, you can have any tree in this garden, any of them, except that one right there belongs to me. You can't have that one. All the nations of the world have their places by language and family. But there's one place they want, the one they can't have. He says, no, Abraham, if you will believe this, if you will attain a height of faith, then I will reckon that to you as righteousness. And how many of you feel like you have conquered at this point in your life 613 commandments completely? You don't have to. You just walk. As he reveals his word to you, see, he's already put those credits in your account. You're already credited, which 613 don't apply to you anyway. It's, we're not all males. We're not all females. We're not all moms. We're not all sons, daughters, merchants, 
farmers. There's only a small number anyway that pertain to you. That's why it takes an entire nation to do 613 commandments. We're not all kings. But if you will believe, if you will go to that height of faith and believe what he just says right here, that I will give you this land to possess it. I will give it to your descendants. If you believe that you are a descendant of Abraham, then he will go ahead and put those credits in your account. And then it's just your job to begin walking them out and being faithful to them. The world does not like that covenant. If we go to Genesis 17, 1 through 8, we get more information about the covenant. And I don't want to read the whole thing. You can read the whole thing for yourself. But this is where he changes Avram to Avraham. He says, I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Kenan. It's much bigger than how it looks on the map today. If we go back to the scripture, it goes all the way to the Euphrates River. It goes much farther north up into Syria. All the land of Canaan, and he says it again, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The nations do not like that. Remember, the one tree they can't have, they want. And if we weren't clear about the terms of the covenant at this point, how did Brad used to put it? It's about a land, a covenant, and a people. But he put it in much simpler terms than that. Your faith is based on those three things. Your faith in Yeshua traces back to those three things. Do you believe that Yeshua can perform this? So Genesis 13, 7, we see the covenant is defining a specific land area and a specific people group. He says, arise, walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. This is not for the nations to give or not give. This is not for the nations to carve up, trade, exchange, bargain. There is no word in English, Hebrew, or any other language that will excuse what the world has tried to do to the boundary stones of Israel from the time of Abraham. That's what they're sweating when they hear Zion. They say, no, no, that's my tree. I can have that tree. I decide. And the Holy One says, go ahead and think that. Just ride on and keep thinking that. But the truth is Abraham, he, remember he's already seen the land at this point in Genesis, but he's told arise. There's an extra commandment here. The implication there is like, kum, arise, resurrect. Abraham, I'm going to take you up one realm higher than what you can see with your natural eyes. It's not sand. It's not rocks. It's not trees that you can only see with the natural eye. Abraham, the Garden of Eden is hovering just above this land. I created mankind to be the kind of being, not like the principalities and powers who are spirit beings, but you are spirit, soul, and body. I created you uniquely to be able to navigate between spiritual and natural realms. Mankind is uniquely created to do that. And right now, what have we done? We have relinquished it over to principalities and powers that were not designed to do that. They're doing the best they can. They're doing what they were assigned to do. But you can see the problem with the Prince of Persia. They're single-minded. They do one thing at a time. They don't multitask. But we were created to be able to assimilate his word and to rule according to his word. Not subjectively, according to which trees we think we're entitled to but according to his rule, 
according to which tree he says we're entitled to, according to where he sets the boundaries. So he says, I will give it to you. No human being is going to do this. And it's those terms that the nations have always coveted. Hating the Israelites, hating Jews, it's a deep human disease. It even affected the relationship between Cain and Abel, between Esau and Jacob. Adonai is the creator. He gets to decide which trees are what. He gets to decide which nations are what. He gets to define what is acceptable behavior and what is not. We don't. We don't get to do that. So he made the design of the earth, he set the boundaries, and he determined the inheritance that each nation would receive. Cain didn't want that boundary. He's like, Cain, I can't respect that offering. I didn't tell you to bring of the fruit of the ground that wasn't your best. But Abel over here, he brought the best. He brought the choicest of his flock. When we don't bring our best, he's not going to respect it. He might love us, but he won't respect it. He can't respect it because you didn't do what he said. He can love you, but it doesn't mean that he will accept when you make up your own offerings. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love you when you make up your own commandments. He loves you, but he can't respect what you have done trying to step into his place as the creator. Esau and Jacob, the same thing, envy. There was envy there. We want to respect his boundaries. And You can see, even in Cain, as early as just being kicked out of the garden, all the way up to Esau, they were a couple of crybabies. When Cain is coveting approval, and he doesn't get it, he kills his brother, and then he comes up with, my punishment is more than I can bear. Well, you just killed your brother. This, me sending you east of Eden, that's too much? And then what did Esau say? In Genesis 27:34, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And he said to his father, bless me, even me also, my father. Bless me, even me also, oh, my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. Is there just one blessing? Please, I want what he has. Don't we do that our whole lives? Don't we complain when we don't have what somebody else has? So here's the thing to remember about Esau. Number one, he's a crybaby. You can hear it several times a day if you're in Israel. <laughs> Every time there's a call to prayer coming over those loudspeakers from the mosque, you can hear Esau crying. But here's the difference between Esau and Amalek. We need to know the difference. Esau dominates, he possesses, and he will kill if it serves those ends. But he's mostly about control. He believes if he can control, then Elohim, the God of Jacob, is not the most powerful. You know, even as they are committing crimes against humanity, you will hear them say, Allahu Akbar, God is great. (laughs) Not the God of Jacob. That's not what they're saying. They're saying they are the God. They set the rules. They decide on the commandments. They pick the trees. And therefore, if I kill you, it's because I, God, am great. And Jacob's God can't do a thing for him, is what they're saying. There is a worst end of Esau, and we call that Amalek. May his name be blotted out. He's a descendant of Esau. This one wants to kill you. He's not kidding around. Esau wants to kill. Where Esau will keep you alive to control you, because that's just kind of like taunting. See, I control. I got it. They can't have their land you promised him, so you must not be as great as I am. But Amalek will try to kill you especially if you're walking in covenant. He'll kill you through craft. 
He will kill you through animal violence because in the end, what he really wants is to exterminate Elohim. He doesn't want a competitor. So controlling the covenant people and controlling their covenant land is really the key to understand what, understanding what's going on with the scarlet beast in Revelation. If he can control the land, he can control the world. And that's always been his aim, to lift himself up. Now in this fight, of course, the people of covenant are going to be defended. There are principalities and powers out there over the nations. And if the nations are coveting that covenant land... There will be battles in the heavenlies. So when Daniel is praying and he's about to receive a prophecy that's going to actually prophesy the end of the kingdom of Persia, the prince of Persia doesn't want that message to get out. Remember when we did the concise history of the beast? We kind of went through it fast. Gabriel is the strength of El, and he is. He's resisted by the prince of Persia, one of the, the beast kingdoms. And what does it take to break through is Michael. Michael, who is like El? There's only one. And see, even those principalities and powers have to submit to that because they were created by El. They didn't create themselves. They know that. We know even the demons believe and tremble. So in some sense, maybe they're more obedient than we are sometimes. So he had to step back, Prince of Persia stepped back, because there is no one higher than Elohim who created us all. He says, okay, I get it. Gotcha. They have to obey. And this is what we see in Revelation, these principalities and powers that are represented by stars. Because remember, Abraham was told, your descendants will be like them. And we always think that in terms of numbers, because he says, count them if you're able. But he also says, you'll be like them. Well, they can represent principalities and powers over the earth. He's saying, Abraham, your descendants will one day rule this earth the way these principalities and powers are ruling it temporarily. In Revelation, you see those principalities and powers starting. The stars start being shaken and they're falling out. It says like unripe figs because they're no longer needed to do that. Israel is arising to take its place like the stars. What we were created to do as human beings uniquely for that job. They're being obedient, but they're only spirit beings. We have understood the natural world. We are flesh and blood. And so that makes us the more fit to rule with the king of kings. Our Messiah came in flesh and blood. So they, those stars will be toppled from their positions. And remember the encampments out in the wilderness, how they encamped in a specific way to represent the four sides of Jerusalem's walls and the 12 gates from which the tribes will rule and reign. That's what Revelation is showing. This, this is how it's going to happen. And so the same path that brings the nations to judgment is going to lead us back to Jerusalem to take our places. So let's look at the, the coastlands. Let's look at who these nations are. Isaiah 41, 1, and then if you skip down to 8 through 10, it, it kind of concisely tells it. It says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Remember there was about 30 minutes of silence in heaven? It might have something to do with this, like coming to a realization that something in our history is about to change. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us draw together for judgment. Now, that sounds terrifying to me. If I'm among the nations and I have believed that I get to decide where the boundaries are, and the Holy One of Israel says, approach the bench. Let's just see 
He says, even draw your strength. Try to get strong enough to stand before me. Try to have an argument ready. But if we drop down into verse 8, he contrasts the coastlands, the peoples. He says, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now contrast that. Do you want to be out there in the nations? And he's saying, go ahead, strengthen yourself. Let's see what happens. Try to help yourself. Approach the bench. Or would you rather be counted as his servant? And he'll say, I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, which we know is Yeshua, the living word. He says, I am with you. That's exactly what he told Abraham. I will be with you. So that defines for us who the coastlands are. And they're being challenged to approach for this judgment. What we want to do is go back, just with hermeneutics, if we want a good definition of something, we'll go back to the first mention of that word in scripture. So we do. We go back to coastlands, which in Hebrew is E, just E, that's it, E, coastlands. And it's in Genesis 10:5. It says, from these coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. So there's a contrast. There is the boundary of Israel that was drawn by Elohim. And then he says, for the nations, I gave you a portion. I drew those boundaries, which is why it's translated out coastlands instead of other words for nations in that particular type of prophecy. He says, I gave you a place according to your language and your family. He put the the nation's family groups where he wanted them. Those are their assignments. Those are the trees they can eat from. But the problem is, from the beginning, they've wanted to reassign and absorb the descendants of Abraham. That's not their authority. That's not their tree. That's his. He says, I chose you. I set your boundaries. And you say, but what about me? What if I'm not a descendant of Abraham? What if you're not? You know this one. It's Galatians 3.29. It talks about the messianic reign. In the messianic reign, yes, the nations will retain their assigned territories. And the children of Abraham, they will live in peace on their territory. If you're not a physical descendant of Abraham, it doesn't really matter because you're going to come from the same place Abraham did. You're going to come from the summit of your emunah, from the summit of your faith. And you're going to journey the same way he did. That's how you're going to reach the mountain of myrrh and frankincense. Galatians 3.29 says, if, it's conditional, if you belong to Messiah, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. There's no other promise I can think of than the one we just read repeatedly. If you want to live in those boundaries, there's really just two conditions. One of them is belong to Messiah. Then you're considered a descendant of Abraham, whether you've got the blood or not, it doesn't matter. Then Ezekiel clarifies Ezekiel 47, 21, it says, You shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You shall divide it by lot for an inheritance among yourselves and among the aliens who stay in your midst, who remain. That's not a random word. They have to remain in your midst. In other words, they're not out there setting their own rules. 
They want to live in the midst. They want to stay in the covenant with you. These are the requirements for this land. And you say, well, I want to believe in Messiah, but I don't want to keep the rules. Then go back home. He, he, if you weren't a descendant of Abraham, well, he's, he's got you a place by your family and by your language. Go back home until such a time as you're sick of timeout. I don't know if you get a second chance or not, but you have to stay in their midst, who bring forth sons in your midst. In other words, the children become part of that covenant as well. They shall be to you as the native born among the sons of Israel. They shall be allotted an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And in the tribe with which the alien stays, there you shall give him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. You're not left out. You just have to walk like Abraham did. And in this passage of the Song of Songs, he's telling you how to do that. He's telling you to take the same route that Abraham did. Take the route of belief. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He just started doing the last thing he was told to do. He didn't get ahead of himself. He did the last thing he was supposed to do. When you're learning the commandments, do the last thing you've learned to do and make it part of your transformation. That's how you're going to come from Lebanon to Mount Moriah. And that's what Abraham did. He came from Haran. He came from the north. He came down. And ultimately, he ended up on Mount Moriah. He ended up on the Temple Mount, the mountain of frankincense and myrrh, offering Isaac. And that brings us to Messiah, doesn't it? And then later, much, much later, Abraham's descendants would be seen also camped on a journey back. This time they were coming out of Egypt. And remember Bilam? He's been hired to curse Israel and about all he can do is bless them and prophesy over them. Well, he looks out and he sees their tents. He sees Jacob's tents. And he starts prophesying. And in fact, one of the most beautiful songs of scripture, Matovu, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. Bilam looks out and he sees them without a blemish. And you're saying, I think we just read that they had lots of them. I mean, like they were eat up with blemishes, weren't they? How can he see them as beautiful and perfect? It's a prophecy. What Bilam is seeing is Israel replanted back in their land in the millennial reign. He even talks about the buckets of water that are going to be flowing that refer to the Garden of Eden, the aloes and so forth. He's seeing that fusion, that remarrying of the spiritual Eden with the Eden just below it in the natural realm. They'll be married once again, just like Jerusalem comes down like a bride adorned for her husband. That whole land is going to be remarried, the spiritual and the natural, when we're ready. When that last soul comes in and that shofar blows, things are really going to start changing. Our view will even change what we're able to see. And so they were, we will be a gift of return. We will be part of that return. And that's what he says, remember, in verse 8. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. He says, journey down from the summit of Amana. Come from a height of faith. Come from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. Come out of the beast systems. This is very similar to what Abraham was told. Lech lecha. Go for yourself. Abraham, go look, go look at this land, but see it with spiritual eyes. See your descendants camped here. In the Garden of Eden, there was no plan B. He never changed plan A. That's where we were created to live. Just because we can't 
see the spiritual realm because it's slightly withdrawn doesn't mean it's not there. And if you've ever been there, you've probably sensed it hovering. You know it's there. You just can't see it. But you sense that it's there. He says, journey down, tashuri in Hebrew. It's kind of the same as lech lecha. Shur in Hebrew. It's a funny word. It means to lurk. Lurk. Behold, lay wait, look, observe, perceive, regard, see. It means to really analyze something, really look at it. Think about it hard. The first mention where somebody's really looking hard and trying to perceive something takes us right back to the prophecy of Bilam. In Numbers 23.9, Bilam says, As I see him from the top of the rocks, and I look at him from the hills. Look at him. The root of that is sure. That's taking us back to the first mentions. Behold, it says, a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. The first mention of this journey down that we're told in the Song of Songs, it takes us all the way back to the prophecy of Bilam, seeing the nation of Israel camped in its place, and it says they will not be reckoned among the nations. And that's exactly what the nations are trying to do today. They're trying to reckon them. You can't reckon an Israelite. Reckon? And then our song says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no blemish in you. Well, here's what Bilam said in Numbers 23, 21, as he continues that prophecy, says he has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout, the teruah of a king is among them. So how can Israel possibly be camped without a blemish? How can we be that beautiful? It tells us the shout of a king is among them. The teruah. Don't we do that at Rosh Hashanah, at the Feast of Trumpets? Don't you blow a teruah? And that commemorates a future event that is called the resurrection from the dead. How will you be so beautiful? You are going to have a new body. You're going to be resurrected from the dead. Spirit soul, and body. There will be no blemish in you, not one. And Bilam says, oh, wow, look how beautiful they are. There's no wickedness. They're not sinning. How can that happen? If you will journey from Lebanon, if you will right here put down roots in the word and become fragrant in the word, if you will come from the height of your faith like your father Abraham did, then there will be no blemish in you at the resurrection. And he will emplace you back in your land, back into the place of your inheritance. And the the catalyst for all this is a king. There is a king that was born. Numbers 24, 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him. There's our word again, sure, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall arise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. A king is going to be born, says Bilam. Well, three wise men figured out a king had been born. And through this king, there would be perfection in Israel. Through this king, the boundaries of the land would be reestablished. So that word sure means to lurk, to observe, to perceive, to really analyze something as you look at it. It can be good and bad. Because remember, it also means to lurk. Like a predator. What does a predator do? It just kind of lurks around and it observes so it can find your weak place. Find the weak member. 
And there are some ominous prophecies with that word in it. Hosea 13, 7 says, I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lie in wait by the wayside. This is the Holy One saying, I'm going to do this to Israel. The same way I inspired the beast kingdoms to lurk and to take them captive, he says, I'm going to do that too. Because of their idolatry, because they thought they could change the boundaries. They thought they could make up the commandments. They thought they could commit idolatry and get away with it. But... Even in their exile, it's also proof he's still lurking. He's still observing us. Yes, he sent the tribes away for idolatry, but he's still lurking to redeem us from the red beast. He didn't go to sleep. He's still lurking to do you good. Imagine, sometimes you see it on commercials, like imagine you've got a little leopard right here. You can't see him, but he's right there. Imagine you've got a lion over here as you walk through the day. And that lion is lurking, and he's watching, and he's waiting to show himself strong on your behalf. But he says in Hosea, as he goes on in 14, 4 through 8, why is he lurking? Why did he follow us out here? He says, I will heal their apostasy. No more idolatry. I will love them freely, for my anger has been turned away from them. I will be like the dew. Dew represents resurrection, by the way. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. That's the exiles. They're going to be sprouting up like the cedars of Lebanon in the places of their exile. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain. They will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim. What more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and who look after you. There's our word again. Sure, I'm looking after you. I'm lurking around. I'm trying to do good for you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. And this is what's happening right now. Adonai is lurking to resurrect Ephraim from his idols so he can bring him home, so he can attain that summit of faith like Abraham. Abraham had to leave his idols. He was in a place of idolatry, had to leave it behind. So he's saying, okay, come on, put your roots down. Get your roots in the word. He says, I want to take you to Lebanon, to a height of faith, and then you're going to journey down. You're going to, remember, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, but then we're going to go up into that realm of resurrection. And then what happens? We're going to descend again in order to rule and reign with King Messiah. We're going to have to journey down. He's going to take us to that final summit of our faith, which is the resurrection. And he says, okay, now we've got a, now we've got a traumatized world to work with. Imagine what the world's going to be like after seven years of tribulation. They'll be traumatized. They're traumatized already. So we're, we're going to have a lot of repair work to do. Yeshua's going to have things for us to do. Yay, we're going to be busy. We're putting things on the resume right now. We want more on there than just a name, cell phone number, and address. We want to know his word because there's no other measurement. He's going to rule according to his word. So yes, Lebanon is a place of exile for Jacob and his sons, but we will return from that exile. And you know the, the boundaries, when we return, when we see the full boundaries, it goes all the way to the Euphrates River. So the the territory will be increased. And if you remember, when we did the concise history of the beast, we talked about the north, Tzaphon, and how the rabbis say Messiah is hidden in the north. Messiah is hidden in the north. It's a play on word. Tzaphon, hidden, he's hidden in the north. But they also say that 
the divine presence, you might hear it called the Shekinah in different places. It comes from Shekin, which means to dwell. They say that his divine presence went with the exiles west. You say, are you talking about compass directions? Only vaguely. We're talking about symbolism, prophetic symbolism. North, representing where Messiah is hiding for a time. West, representing where the exiles went and how the presence is still out there lurking with them to bring them home. The, the directions do have symbolism. And so the rabbis would say that when the exiles come home, they will come from the west, a place of exile, and they will return from the north with King Messiah, who has been hiding. That peak of Amana, again, it's thought to refer to Abraham. It's how we get home. The, the faithfulness is part of it, to returning, to having an inheritance in the messianic era. These exiled children coming home. And the, the play on word there, the, the summit of Amuna or summit of Amana is her faith. The bride is going to have a faith when she comes home. And she's going to return home, according to Bilam, through a star and a scepter. The shout of a king is among them. There will be a star and there will be a scepter. Well, we know the star did arise from Jacob, and that was King Messiah. He arose from the tribe of Judah. He held that scepter because Judah is the royal tribe. Who's the gold, though? We kind of get the frankincense and myrrh. That one, not a hard one to figure out. But who's the gold? Why would they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Well, there's some scripture references you can read more. Exodus 28, 11, Exodus 39, 6. But in a nutshell, Israel is the gold. Israel is the refined 12 tribes coming home. They are returning to the mountain of frankincense and myrrh because if you remember, the high priest bore them on his shoulders on the Shoham stones. The name of each tribe was etched and it was set in gold, filigree. So we are being inscribed and set in gold to be returned to the rightful owner, to the rightful king. We are gifts for a Messiah. It says, surely the coastlands will wait for me, Isaiah 60, verse 9. And the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them. See the equivalence of expression when you're reading prophecy? Look within the same verse to find the definition. Your sons are the silver and the gold. For the name of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. You haven't glorified yourselves. He has glorified you. It says at the end of days, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the holy city. Not their glory, his glory. They, they will finally recognize, I don't have any glory. It's only his glory. And when you do that, you can come into the holy city. Now you understand the difference between this tree and this tree. It never was your tree. He's only let you use his glory. So we know King Herod was afraid of the Messiah. Well, he knows the prophecy of the seven shepherds and the eighth prince. The central shepherd, remember, was David. And we know Yeshua was literally a son of David through his maternal line. So he was a rightful heir to the throne. He could have legally sat upon the throne of Judah. And the eighth prince is thought to be King Messiah. Herod knows this prophecy. What he doesn't know is that its final fulfillment is still about 2,000 years in the future. He's afraid it's about to happen. He knows that the coastlands are going to return the exiles. He knows there's going to be a regime overthrow. He knows he's not a rightful king. Because 
Herod is a double Edomite. He's an Idumean, which means an Edomite. And during what we say the era of the Maccabees, they were forcibly converted to become Jews. Forcibly, that never works. So by heredity, he's going to have some question marks in the natural realm, but he is also a citizen of Rome who was thought to be Esau, the red one, Edom. So he's two kinds of red one. He's two kinds of red beast. And that's why Yeshua was challenged on the Temple Mount at the time of Hanukkah. At the Feast of Dedication, they said, if you're the Messiah, just tell us plainly. And he did. He starts talking about sheep. He says, my sheep know my voice. But he, he tells them, because you can't hear what I'm saying, you're not of my sheep. He's saying, remember this prophecy that you're referring to, by the way, when you ask me whether I am that shepherd, if I'm the king Messiah, if I'm the eighth prince, associated with that prophecy is the return of the flocks, the return of the tribes. What you're telling me is you want me to rescue you from the red one, from Rome right now, and to heck with all the rest of the sheep that got scattered out there in the exile. What about all those sheep out there in Lebanon who don't even know what their roots are yet? They've been lost. So he does. He starts talking about sheep, and then he says, there's other sheep. I have to get those. I have to get the exiles back. And the prophecy he's talking about, it comes from Micah 5.5. 5. It says, this one will be our peace. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. He mentions the Assyrian. The Assyrian is not a beast kingdom. You had to conquer Jerusalem to be qualified for a beast kingdom. Assyria got close, but then a little bit of confusion set in and they ran off. However, it's telling us something. Assyria was responsible for the deportation and the exile of the 10 northern tribes. Those lost sheep that Yeshua was talking about, he's saying, it's right there in the prophecy, guys. How can I be Messiah if I don't go get those sheep? They didn't want to wait. But you can see why some of that language is associated with Hanukkah, because it's associated with Sukkot. It says, suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth, the nations within their boundaries, Israel, all of them resettled within their boundaries. This is the work of the seventh shepherd and the eighth prince. It says, in the same reason, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Well, the field is the world and the night is the exile. That's more for prophetic language for you. So what is it saying? He, through that sign of going to the shepherd specifically, he's saying a king is about to be born who's going to get all those sheep back. And so shepherds watching by night, it's part of this prophecy that's associated with the time of Hanukkah. And this is important to remember. At the time of Hanukkah, it's going to commemorate the rededication of the temple itself of which you are, you are little temples, because the abomination that causes desolation was set up on the 15th of Kislev, and they started making sacrifices to it on the 25th, Hanukkah. And Yeshua didn't stop preaching that, by the way. He didn't talk about that as something that's already happened. He said, this which has happened before will happen again. And when you see it, get ready. So why in the world would we try to skip over Hanukkah and say, well, that's not in the Bible? Yeah, it is. It's in the book of Haggai. It's all in the book of Haggai. He even sets the date of it. Why are we arguing over whether a Hanukkah is a valid symbol? 
because we don't do our research. We get bad information and we come to bad conclusions and then we say and do bad stuff. We miss the prophecies because we're so busy on the internet. So yes, Herod is double Edom. And here's the prophecy against Edom. And so he's got double reason to be afraid. Ezekiel 35, 2, son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. That's Esau. Prophesy against it and say to it, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay waste your cities and you will become a desolation. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you have said, these two nations and these two lands will be mine, and we will possess them, although the Lord was there. Remember the two nations in Rebekah's womb? Who wanted them all? He didn't want to stay on his territory. He had a blessing, because he cried for it. (laughs) But he says, no, these two nations, I want what's assigned to Jacob. I want what was promised to the descendants of Abraham. I want that tree. I decide. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord, I will deal with you according to your anger and according to your envy. Remember, we said it's always been about envy, what somebody else has, because you don't think the Holy One has the authority to set that boundary in your life. So I say, if people aren't envying us yet, it's because maybe we're not that identifiable yet with the covenant. The closer, the more you walk in the commandments, the more people will envy you if it's a matter of the heart. If you're just collecting commandments and trying to tell people how wrong they are, they're not going to envy that. Who would want to be like that? He says, which you showed because of your hatred against them. So I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Verse 14, as all the earth rejoices, I will make you a desolation. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will do to you. You will be a desolation, O Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. He's saying this is how he's going to be known on all the earth, and all the earth will rejoice when finally Edom, the red beast, is exposed that he is not the Lord. He is not the creator. He does not get to move boundary stones. He does not get to divide, carve up, deed over, nothing. He does not touch that land. He does not touch that people. He does not touch that covenant for all eternity. It's not his to touch. That's where we're going. You have to believe that. You have to get on that mountain and believe that. If you desire that as your inheritance with Israel, there's no other choice. If you are Messiahs, Paul wrote, if you are Messiahs, then you are the descendants of Abraham. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.